excuse my appearance here, I was at a UCCF camp speaking to all the Christian Union leaders from uh, the various universities across the nation. Great privilege to uh, speak to them. And uh, just on the campsite, and unexpectedly, as you come to the end of the field and there's a path, there was a curbstone, which I'd failed to see. And someone driving by said, hello, Terry. And I looked and tripped uh, over the curbs onto the uh, asphalt. And uh, I've broken a bone in my elbow, uh, cracked it, I guess. And uh, so hopefully that's going to get better because I leave for the USA uh, next week. So Wendy will have to lift all the cases. Uh, <laughs> people will look on. What's that man letting his wife lift the cases for? Anyway, it's great to be back in this wonderful church and uh, enjoy fellowship with you as you start your fresh year, fresh season together. I'm going to be speaking from Romans chapter 12, just a couple of verses. I'll read them to you and uh, then we'll get into the study straight away. Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul has been setting out in 11 chapters all that God has been doing for us, all that he's magnificently did, especially in the cross, but actually in his great purpose, global purpose, down through the centuries, how he's worked through Abraham, how he raised up the Jewish nation, how he's given birth to the church. He's dealt with so many issues. And then only when he gets to chapter 12 do we get this turning point where the spotlight comes back on us and he says, now in view of all these things, therefore, this is the response that would be appropriate for you in the light of all that God has done. So we're just going to read a couple of verses here in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the joy of singing about Jesus, focusing our attention on this one who's changed our lives. We thank you as we think of the cross. This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. It is finished. He's done it. Lord, we can't celebrate enough the great truths that we sing out. We thank you, Lord God, for sending your darling son, your beautiful, beloved son, to be smashed onto a cross, to be spat upon, to be beaten, to bear the fury of a holy God that we might know mercy and forgiveness. And Father, we celebrate it with all our hearts. And we ask you right now, Father, please let your mighty Holy Spirit rest upon us now. Come, Holy Spirit. Be our teacher. Help every one of us to engage with the living God Father, I pray men and women here in this room will hear more than I say. They'll hear the Holy Spirit speaking into their hearts. So come let this be, a, Lord, part of your working in us for your great glory, Father. Ask it, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. So as we said, 
Paul is telling us that in view of the mercies of God, there is an appropriate response. Many of us would think uh, that if you become religious, you are taking on a lot of duties. Uh, and in fact, when people had first encounters with the gospel, even in Bible days, their question was, what must I do? A rich young ruler came to Jesus and his question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do? What, what, what are the things you have to perform to inherit this? Uh, when uh, the gospel was preached in Philippi, a man cried out, what must I do to be saved? On the day of Pentecost, thousands shouted, what must we do? What must we do? And often people think, well, to become a religious person, to become a Christian, there are things you must do. And uh, other religions would say, well, you know, go and wash in the Ganges. Go and uh, attend Mecca. Uh, say so many Hail Marys, there are things you must do to be saved. But Paul, instead of taking that line, uh, wonderfully reflects the gospel reality that God has taken the first, second, third, fourth, fifth steps. He's the one who has prepared the way for us. It's not so much what we must do, because he's the one who's done it. He has done everything for us. But then comes this wonderful uh, response in view of the mercies of God. Now that's perhaps a, a Jewish way of speaking, a kind of use plurals to say the great mercy, the mercies, the multiplied mercies of God. And of course he's been setting these out, the mercy of forgiveness of sins. He set that out at the beginning of Romans. He said that we, we all fall short of God's glory. We all have gone our own way, but God's showing us mercy. Not only that, he's justified us. He's, God, like a great a judge, has declared us totally not guilty, as though we had never, ever sinned. This is amazing good news. The gospel, the mercies of God, justified freely by grace, and we stand in grace. He goes on to say, and you're not under law, that Old Testament way of trying to please God by keeping rules and regulations, it's all finished. You've died to that. You've been raised to newness of life. Chapter 8, he says, now you have the Holy Spirit who causes from the heart you to say, Abba, Father, an intimate relationship with God. Then he says this, he makes everything work together for good for us. Then he says, he's going to give us a new body and a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, it just piles on the mercies of God. Verse after verse, and it'd be wonderful to take weeks and weeks going through chapter after chapter, telling of all the mercies. And then in view of those, he says, now I appeal to you. In the light of all that, I'm, I'm, I'm making an appeal. When I first started to preach grace, I was scared of making appeals to people. I thought, no, surely that's just spontaneous now. It just comes out of our uh, thanksgivings. But you'll find Paul often uses this word, I appeal to you, I urge you, I just bring this to you, that you should respond in this kind of a way. I appeal to you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now that's an interesting way of expressing what he's after. Present your bodies. Notice he doesn't say this, I want you to give your heart to Jesus. We, we come up with phrases like that. We even had songs which say, I lay it all down. But the Bible is much more specific and it talks about presenting our bodies, not our, just our hearts, but where we express life. 
See, sometimes we can get quite confused when we say, well, you know, I just give him my heart. Well, actually, the Bible's very interested in what we do with our bodies. Very interested. And that would have been against the Greek culture that Paul uh, was working in, where the Greeks kind of despised the body. They saw the body as just a kind of a, a trap in which the spirit lived. And the spirit was everything, and you could disregard the body. But that's not biblical. The Bible is full of emphasis on the body. What you actually do with your body matters to God. It's a kind of a whole religion, the whole person God's interested in. Sometimes, it's, you know, you go into a house and a dog comes up to you and the, and the person who owns the dog says, oh, doesn't he love you? He's loving you. You say, well, would you please tell him to stop biting me if he loves me? It's what he's doing with his teeth that's troubling me. And they say, oh, no, he really loves you. He said, but his teeth are biting me. God is interested in what we do with the members of our body, the parts of our body, the way we express ourselves. The you that everybody knows is lived out through your eyes. So, for instance, the Bible says there are things God hates. He hates haughty eyes. It doesn't just say haughtiness. He hates haughty eyes. He says also in Proverbs 6, he hates a lying tongue. He hates lying, but he hates the tongue that does it. A lying tongue. He says about, he hates hands that shed innocent blood. It's not just murder, it's hands that do it. He talks about feet that run to evil. And so Paul says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it find an instrument in your members. Because God is very interested in what you do with your body. In fact, he says, present. And he's using, actually, Old Testament language. Present your body as a living sacrifice. Now, it's a strange thing that he's using Old Testament kind of language, the sort of background he came from as a, a former Jew, expecting to go up to worship where you present your offering, you take a lamb, it has to be a perfect lamb, has to be one that's without any uh, 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 spot or any broken limb, has to be a perfect lamb. And he says, now, instead of presenting a lamb, now you present your body. You present it. You, you present it before God. And then he says a strange phrase. He says, as a living sacrifice. Now, that's kind of like an oxymoron, isn't it? It's like talking about boiling ice. It's like... <laughs> Or like a good English summer. I mean, it's, <laughs> well, sometimes we get that, hallelujah. But uh, there are some words that don't belong together. And living sacrifice, well, a sacrifice dies. Your, your, your lamb was alive. Your lamb, come on, lamb. And you bring it and present it. And now it's a dead lamb. It's life, it's over, it's finished. But he's saying, I want you to present yourself as a living Sacrifice, But there's something about the finality of presenting yourself, the sense of which, hey, that life I was living is over. Now I'm living out a life that is fully dedicated through this body of mine. What I do with these hands now, what I do with these eyes now, the way I, I live out this life is going to be as an offering to God in Gratitude for the mercies. In view of these mercies, I'm going to present myself a living sacrifice. Something that I present to him for his glory, but with that same sense of devotion. And then he says this, which is 
your spiritual worship. Now you might say, well, that's, that's what we just did, didn't we? We just did our spiritual worship. We were worshipping God in the Spirit. Isn't that what that's all about? Worshipping in the Spirit? Well, actually, Paul uses the word worship often to describe a whole lifestyle. That what used to, in the Old Testament, be something that you did on a certain occasion, in a certain location, you went to the temple to offer your sacrifice, and that's how you did your worship. Now Paul is saying, no, 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 I want to lift your lifestyle, what you do on Monday at the workplace, what you do at home with your wife, your children, what you do with regard to your neighbours. It's not just a moment when you're offering religious worship, but a lifestyle that is being lived out with the same spirit of devotion, but it's on everyday life. I see, and he calls it your spiritual worship. Actually, the word spiritual there isn't the best word you could use. The Greek word is logikos, from which we get our word logical. And it means really worship that makes sense or rational. He's saying, look, if Christ laid down his life for us, then isn't it logical to give yourself back to him? Doesn't it make sense? Isn't it rational? He gave his life. And he says elsewhere, he, he died for all that they who live should no longer live to themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we have a new centre of gravity, a new reason for living. And this living out of our life is like an Old Testament sacrifice. Of course, the lamb has no consciousness of why his, his life is taken from him. He can't rationally offer himself. Jesus said, a body you've given me, I delight to do your will. He, he logically, he rationally gave himself to God. Now Paul is saying, hey, hey, in view of what he's done, if you have these huge mercies, you're going to live forever. You're a child of the king, perfectly righteous forever, in view of all he's done. Come on. It just makes sense. It's worship that makes sense. It's not just spiritual because, well, we sang in tongues for a bit. It's logical. He gave himself. Come on, let's give ourselves back to him. That's what he's saying. Giving our bodies to him as a living Sacrifice, presenting ourselves to him because we're no longer our own. Jesus spoke with similar ruthlessness when he said, if your eye offends you, tear it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And coming to God, it, it, it's got that kind of finality. As regards sin, it means you turn from it, which means this, you never get to do it again. That sin that you used to do, that stuff you used to get into, the way you used your body before, when you've offered it a sacrifice, it means this, you never, ever get to do it again. You say, but that's like dying. That's right. That's right. It's like dying. It's like, that's all over. I never, ever get to do it again. And God wants us not to have that. Well, I want to go back to that. No, we're offering ourselves all together. We, we never get to do those things again. Our life past is, is long enough for that stuff. Now with the same finality of a lamb being sacrificed, we give ourselves over to him. The way we use, not just our hearts, but the members of our body. 
what we do with our body. I know a South African guy, maybe known to some of you, he was in a big youth meeting, such as one I've just been in this last week. He said, right, young men, all stand. And they all stood. He said, right, now say after me. Put your hands on your chest and say after me, this is the only chest my hands are going on until I get married. <laughs> Given to him, that sort of stuff, no, it, it's, I'd never get to do it again. There's a finality, there's a commitment, there's, I'm, I'm giving over. There's a, that old lifestyle's finished. It's finished, it's over, it's gone. I'm giving myself, my, my members, to God as a living sacrifice to him. And then he says this, don't get conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to it. J.B. Phillips famously translates this, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. I know when I first went to China some years ago, it was while Chairman Mao's voice was still being dominant, and everybody that I saw was wearing a, a Mao suit. Men and women, everywhere you went, the crowds are all wearing these navy blue shapeless suits and hats. I mean, you looked around, you couldn't even see which was men, which were women. They were totally conformed. Sometimes the state conforms you. And certainly the way the Greeks dominated, when they, when they uh, broke into another nation, they would bring in the theatre, the gymnasium, uh, they would bring in their language, they would bring in their culture, they would impose it on the culture, say, this is the way Greeks live, this is where you must live, you're under our authority now, you must conform to our culture, our style. And sometimes throughout history there have been, there have been those kind of authoritative uh, governments have imposed, but to be honest, it's possible to just volunteer to be shaped by a culture to let the values of the world shape you. And Paul is saying, now look, we're now living as a sacrifice to God and we're not going to allow uh, this world to dominate the way we think. It's not going to shape our worldview. We need to be aware of this, that when we become Christian, our worldview gets completely transformed. So when Jesus gathered his disciples, even within one nation, within Israel, he had within his own team, he had a tax collector, and tax collectors had sold their souls to the Romans. The tax collectors said to the Romans who came in, smashed Israel, said, we want taxes from you. These guys went to them and said, hey, you want taxes from us? We'll get taxes for you. And turned on their own people and said, give us your taxes. And gave them to the Romans and kept some for themselves. I mean, they, they had completely sold themselves over. And then in the same team, in Jesus' little cell group, He's got Simon the Zealot. Well, zealots were terrorists. They'd slit the throat of a Roman. If they had a chance, they'd just go out and kill a Roman soldier. I mean, they were terrorists. And you go to Jesus' cell group, and one side of the room, there's a tax collector, and the other side of the room, there's a zealot. They could not be further removed. Their, their, their worldview was miles apart. And they, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Well, Jesus called me. You mean you've, you've, you've come to Jesus? You, 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 you. 
That, that kept on happening. Like when Peter went to Cornelius' home, that Roman soldier's home, and the Spirit fell upon Cornelius and the Roman soldiers, and they started speaking in tongues. And Peter's very reluctant to go to this Gentile home. I mean, Gentiles, you don't go to Romans. He walked in, he talked about Jesus, and the Spirit fell. What are you guys doing speaking in tongues? You mean God is for you? God is with you? I thought God was with us. Well, so God's for you. So God's for you and God's... So, you see, when we become believers, beloved, all kinds of other priorities start reshaping themselves. Oh, I'm very right-wing. My dad was. We've always voted this way. Oh, I'm very left-wing. I've always done this. Uh, oh, yeah, well, I'm a Christian as well, but this is where... No, 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 no. Now, that doesn't mean we kiss our brains goodbye and don't care about... But, beloved, there's a far, it's a far greater allegiance that... That we may still come to different conclusions and vote different ways. I'm not trying to impose, as we'll come to in a moment. But I'm saying that don't let the world shape your thinking. There are all kinds of ways in which our, will, our, our, our thoughts are shaped. You're squeezed into the mould. I guess there are mothers here who brought their 15-year-old boys or 14-year-old boys, trainers. I bought you these trainers for school. I can't wear those trainers. Why not? They're perfectly good. Oh, no, the boys would laugh at me. You have to have this up the side. But that up the side costs... Oh, yeah, I've got to have them. Why have you got to... Well, I mean, oh, I've got to have them. Why? Well, it's... You know, they all have them. They all have all sorts of things. They all have a better car. They've got a better washing machine. They've got just all sorts of stuff that can shape the way you value life. Your priorities, the way you spend your money, your time, the thing you want to see on television. Oh, Downton's going to start soon. Oh, can't wait for... Your Christians say, can't wait for the next Batman. I mean, okay, see it. But What do you mean you can't wait for it? What is this all about? What is it? Wow, everybody, oh, they're all talking about it. You know, it's coming. I hear the melody, the Downton music. Ooh. Hey. What, how, how affected, how shaped are we? We get shaped without realising. We put value on stuff that's not necessarily all that important. Don't let the world shape you. Don't let it shape you. And so it says... Uh, in Ephesians, this is how Paul reads uh, the world. This is how he sees it. Let's just remember what the world is built on. He says this, he says, don't live like the Gentiles in what? The futility of their mind. Now, this is, this is the biblical assessment of culture without Christ. That means our culture, increasingly Christless, tragically. Increasingly Christless. It's, it's in the... The futility of your mind is being darkened in their understanding. They don't understand. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of evil. See, that's the culture is shaped by... Ignorance of God, a hardness of heart. 
which leads to sensuality. And that, that affects the culture. And Paul is saying, don't let the culture shape you. Be careful. Present your bodies. Present your bodies, the members, to God. And don't let this culture shape you. But instead, he says, now notice this, very important. Don't come be conformed to that world. Be conformed to our world. Learn the Christian rules. You mustn't do that. You don't go there. You're not allowed to do that. That's what it looked like when I became a Christian. I received Christ into my life, and then someone came up to me and said, oh, now you're a Christian. You mustn't do that. You mustn't do that. You've got to do that. I thought, oh, thank you. You know, one thing I thought, I received new life. And then someone loaded all this stuff on me. I thought, oh, it's wonderful. I've been so wonderfully released by the gospel. Because <laughs> now you're a Christian. Here's what we conform you to. This is the way you've got to do it. You mustn't do that. What are you doing your hair like that for? And why are you wearing that? And what are you up to? You know, no, no, no. It doesn't say, don't be conformed to this world. Be conformed to our world. It doesn't say that. It's much more exciting than that. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. Transformed. That's a wonderful word. It's a wonderful word. The Greek word is the word we get our word metamorphosis from, which is what happens to a caterpillar when it becomes a butterfly. It's the same creature. Can you believe it? It's the same creature that crawled along that now flutters by. Have you ever seen a dragonfly grub? What a ghastly thing. You see that, you see that magnified, a dragonfly, think, ugh, a ghastly thing. And then you see it when it becomes the flying creature with its wings and the colour. You see a dragonfly flying over the top of a stream. You think, man, that is the most beautiful thing. It went through a metamorphosis. Same creature. Paul is saying this, don't, don't let the world conform you. Be transformed. Transformed. Changed from the inside, beloved. Not by saying, well, we don't do those things anymore. We're religious. We do these things now. That is not what Paul is saying. He's saying, let your whole way of thinking be transformed into a new kind of life, a new plane. The word is used three times in the New Testament. Another famous one is when Jesus went up to the mountain with just Peter, James and John and it says Elijah, Moses appeared and Jesus was transfigured before them. What you suddenly see, it's the same Greek word translated transfigured on this occasion. Suddenly he's glistening with glory. It's not like Moses' face is reflecting glory. It says when Moses put a cloth over his face, that could hide it. Jesus, it says his very clothes were shining. This is magnificent. He was transformed. Same word. Be radically changed. So that people don't just notice, oh, you comb your hair differently now. Or you don't wear those. Sort of... No, that's, that's your attitudes, your values. Your style, your way, the things that matter to you. It's so much more than externalism. In fact, Paul strongly argues against externalism in Colossians 2. He says, when people say to you, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, all that looks very religious, he says, but it's of no value. 
Externalism imposed on us is of no value. That's the tragedy of it. Wendy and I were living in the USA for, for two years back in the 90s and uh, we were in the Missouri area and there was an Amish or Amish community nearby. And the Amish community, I'm sure they were doing good stuff, but they, they wouldn't drive cars. Uh, they wore old-fashioned clothing. Uh, they just went with a buggy. They didn't get into electrical things. I mean, they just lived... It's like you live in another generation to prove that you're different. And we don't prove we're Christians by wearing clothes that are 20 years out of date. <laughs> but it's an internal thing that all your values change. And notice the third time it's used. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, we all, with unveiled face, reference back to uh, Moses again, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his same image from glory to glory. It's not simply an outward change, it's an inward, uh, it's in respect of our real being that we are changed. The transformation is of the essential man. Sam Storm says this, if you don't look, you won't change. As we behold, we are being changed. That's why you're so blessed in being in a church that really worships by the presence of the Spirit and you're focusing on Jesus. When you're singing out these great songs that are saying great things, we don't sing little ditties, like there's something about that name. We want to sing truth. And this is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. See, as you behold him, as you look at him, a supernatural thing's happening. You are subjects of a transforming power. A transform God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. The more intoxicated with Jesus you get, the more you look at him, not coldly, not merely intellectually, but you look on him, you gaze on him, you feast on him. And, and, and the kind of truths that come out from his life and what he did for us, we are being changed. Jonathan Edwards says this, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more, more glorified than if they only see it. When we rejoice in it, when we behold him, we, we are being changed. We are being changed. And recently I stumbled on a wonderful quote from a, a Puritan. And... Uh, you often get, the Puritans don't have very good press, do they? You think miserable Puritans. But they knew a thing or two. And especially, I want to quote John Flavel or Flavel. I don't know how to pronounce it, and he's not around to ask him anymore. So he says this. Let me just read his quote. It's quite a long quote, really, but I'll comment on it as I go along. He says this. Ecstasy, not talking about the modern drug, <laughs> ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul. And they promote sanctification. We are not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. See, it's interesting. We sometimes, some Christians, some very serious-minded, theologically accurate people sometimes, can despise joyful worship, 
experiencing his love, finding times in your prayer meetings where you think, wow, God is in this place. They've got no time for that. They think that's a waste of time. This Puritan knew better. This Puritan said this, delight is essential, essential to the believer. Times when your, your heart is moved. Emotionally, yes, moved. These are essential to the believer and they promote sanctification. See, some of these serious people say, well, we're, more, we're more interested in sanctification, not that stuff. No, he said, no, no, no. This promotes sanctification. We're not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. The Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his, his emotions satisfied by earthly things. He goes on to say, the soul is so constituted that it craves fulfilment from things outside of itself and will embrace earthly joys for satisfaction when it cannot reach spiritual ones. We depend on outward stimulus. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of Christ and savouring the felt comforts of a Saviour's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go on silent search for other lovers. That's so insightful. If you're not finding your joy in Jesus, your soul will go on silent search. You go looking for other lovers. I was speaking at a Christian Union thing some years ago, a lot of students, hundreds of students, and I had Q&A time. And a girl asked me the question, she said, if I haven't got a boyfriend, I don't know what love's about, how can I love God? And I had to reply, I had a broken, when I came to Christ properly, I lost all my friends, and a broken engagement, I lost my fiancé. But I found Christ then more than I ever had before. I found him actually meeting my heart's desire, filling me with joy which I could hardly comprehend, giving me peace and love and making old hymns so precious to me. I'm singing things like, mine, 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 I know you're mine. Explosive joy in the presence of Jesus. By enjoyment of the love of Christ in the heart of the believer, we mean the experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So, beloved, as we enter into a new season, let's look at this wonderful verse. Paul's saying, look, in view of all God's amazing mercies, we can pile them up, we can write chapters of them. Let's present, not just our hearts, what does that mean? But our bodies, what we actually do, the way we look, haughty eyes, how do we look? Hands that, mm, no, stop it. That's all finished. Present it all over. It's like you died. Yeah, we don't get to do it again. It's like a sacrifice. We've laid down our lives. But actually, we're living. A living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable. Not squeezed into this world's way of thinking that doesn't even know God. Not getting conformed, but being transformed. Changed from the inside. Not just learning new rules, but inner transformation. 
for the glory of God. Should we stand to pray?